Welcome to the program. I'm talking with Jeff Wells, who is a specialist. He's a urologist uh, based in Melbourne. And Jeff, you were the person who, who set up the COVID Doctors Network during COVID. And we'll come to that. Good to be talking to you again, Jeff. Very, very good to hear you, Pierce. And uh, we've had quite a few chats in the past and always been enjoyable, I think informative. So yeah. uh, I'm sure this will continue. Let's hope so. So I guess what's, you know, the big thing that's changed and uh, is that the Premier's resigned and, and, you know, one of the sort of ironies is people used to call him a dictator and, and yet he voluntarily gave up, you know, literally... I think he quit on the 27th of September, the last election he won quite solidly with an increased majority for Labor in November 22, shy of a year anyway, about 10 months thereabouts after winning the election and saying that he, you know, he was asked, he planned to stay on, but he said he'd had enough and he wanted to resign on his own terms. So the dictator ironically actually gives up power. Quite interesting, Piers, because before the election, and I was considering running against him, right. and I had quite a deal of backing there. But anyway, as it ensured, uh, a few friends of mine were pretty upset about that, and my wife wasn't all that happy. So we didn't run. But he emphatically said that he was going to complete the term. Yeah, I know. And as we all know, that didn't happen. But <clears throat> I heard about a, a lunch that was at Lindsay Fox's 86th lunch, and he apparently was talking to someone and he told the person who probably should remain anonymous that he was going to leave the state of Victoria in December 2023, so where we are now, and he was going to go and live in the US right. uh, and have a government-funded job under the previous Prime Minister and as a somewhat sort of a trade envoy and he's wanted to do that for a couple of reasons but one of the other reasons was he wants to join the national golf club in the east coast of america which is an extremely prestigious golf club it's probably the second most prestigious golf club in america secondary to augusta right so whether he's successful in that is going to be interesting yeah, well, we know that he's got some form locally in trying to join up with golf clubs on the Mornington Peninsula, and specifically there was Portsea and then also the National up at Cape Shank. They're both very good golf courses. The National in particular is a, a, you know one of the best in Australia, and the Portsea one's pretty good as well. What do you make of that? Because you're actually member a member of the same club as he is, um, Kingston Heath in the sand belt of eastern suburb Melbourne. You've actually played golf with the former Premier, I believe, at Kingston Heath. Yes, yeah. yes. There's an old saying that politics don't cross the driveway in golf clubs. Yeah. I suppose that's exactly true. But it's fair to say, I think, it parallels his regard in the rest of Victoria. Suffice to say, Pierce is not well liked. I think it's a reflection of what people now think in the state of Victoria and the vast majority of people that I know and speak to are not keen on him at all. Interestingly, Max Beck actually spoke to members at Portsea Golf Club and asked what they thought about Daniel Andrews joining and there was a resounding no. But very astute, as you know, joining all clubs, whether they be prestigious or not, one of the questions is, have you been refused membership? And he hasn't actually asked to be a member. He's had someone do it on his behalf. Yeah, so that's right. If you uh, have to tick the box where you have been refused membership, it's quite an uphill battle from there on. So he's managed to deflect that question. And, you know, we've got to say, he's, he's good at deflecting things like this. <laughs> It's all a part of his personality. And I've been thinking of his personality for quite a while. Mm. And I've always enjoyed thinking about how people react in certain situations. And I guess I have a bit of a holistic view on, on people's health. And I've basically decided that, and this is my view, it, it may not be accurate, but I think he's one of quite a significant number of men in Australia. There's about 500,000 people in Australia with this 
personality trait, which is called a narcissistic personality disorder. Right. Now, this is my view. It may not be correct. I've spoken to a couple of people in the psychiatric game who think that's probably accurate. But, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. But uh, certainly it's a condition that's more common in males. Right. And it generally shows a lack of empathy for others. Mm. It can be associated with arrogance, being quite dismissive of people with contralateral views, can be quite manipulative. And I really think that it can sum his personality up because he's certainly probably one of the most disliked people in Victoria at the present time. I think that he's going to feel a little isolated as time goes on. I may be wrong. The power has been voluntarily withdrawn, as he's done himself, for whatever reason we're not sure of. There could be some court cases involved. I'm not sure. But it'll be interesting to see what happens as time goes on and whether he does actually leave Australia and go and work for a short or long period of time in the east coast of America. Mm. Well, a few things to, to, to touch on with that. I mean, and one obvious one is that, you know, that there's a lot of, there are people who would disagree with your summary of, of him in, about popularity because he did win three elections and he won the last election with an increased majority, bizarrely enough, and he claims that he made the decision to resign only in a short period of time, literally a matter of a few weeks, I think he claims, before yes. resigning on September the 27th, 2023. But yes. you know, others would, would say, no, this was a very well-planned thing. He wanted to get out for whatever reason. You've alluded to some, possibly some bad news or bad things that were going to reveal themselves eventually, and he, he, he thought he'd be better off not in power when those things were revealed. Some people suggested that he, he was actually protecting his government pension, which I think is in the order of a few hundred thousand dollars a year for life with a driver and an office in Spring Street and numerous other perks. So whatever the reason was, if you were a Labor supporter listening to this, you would say, well, the people voted and he consistently got the popular vote. One obvious thing about that, and, and, and a lot of people have said this in the past, in the media and privately and, and, and so on, is that he did have the benefit of a very, very weak opposition. Um, yes. You know, I mean, the opposition recycled a leader who'd, who'd already lost an election against Dan Andrews. Matthew Guy was the person who, who lost the election about four years ago. They changed leaders and they put him up again to have a crack in November 22 election, which he lost again. And I believe that that's the first time ever, I think, that an opposition leader who's lost has been recycled to have another crack at, at the same Premier. Yeah, I think that's right, Pierce. And the reason is because, the, as we all know, the Liberal Party in Australia are fairly thin in talent, aren't they? They're quite a disappointment. I think if they'd been much stronger than they are, the vote would have been not nearly as in the favour as Labor as it was. In his seat, the Liberal candidate was not at all strong. He was also up against uh, Ian Cook, and Ian Cook as an independent got a significant number of votes. But, you know, I think when you're in power, you've always got the benefit, and he had the benefit of an enormous team. Hmm. I don't know how many people he had working with him for his own seat and in the state of Victoria, but I think he had about two or three times as many people working for him, I believe, as did Scott Morrison. Yeah, yeah, and, that's what they say. You know, yeah. And he's able to manipulate public opinion. He's huge on focus groups, mm. kudos, focus groups. One of them is kudos, which is a, a big uh, company, and he just goes on focus groups continually, and I think he's a very, very smart politician. Mm. But you know what? I think his time had run out. Yeah. There's been a big backswing against him. I see a group of patients who come and see me, probably because a lot of them know my views, and they probably wouldn't come and see me if they thought I was on the other side of politics. But the people I see, I've never seen anyone so despised as Daniel Andrews. <laughs> and that's I'm absolutely serious about this. The patients I see nearly all totally have not a good word to say about him. The only thing they will say is 
is a good politician, but apart from that, I don't see anyone with anything good to say about him. Well, uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. Yeah. He was down at a golf club, and a good friend of mine was there, and it's a well-known golf club, not Kingston Heath, and this chap went up to the bar and said, here's $200 to the barman because you've got to serve Daniel Andrews and I feel sorry for him. <laughs> now, I've never heard anyone else doing anything like that in my life, and that is verbatim 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's theatrical, that's for sure, and the barman would have been happy, wouldn't he? Yes, but there was also the incident at the NGV last week where he went yep. with uh, his wife, Kat, and he was sp- spoken to by a very vitriolic woman who I'm sure was probably a result of someone in small business whose business had probably been decimated. Mm-hmm. She tore shreds off him, and when you have the personality that he's got, they don't react to criticism well. So how do you react to criticism in that? Instead of standing back and being logical and trying to defend yourself, he just left, mm. up and gone. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. He do- well, that's right, and, and he, never, he never went on Neil Mitchell. I want to take you back a little bit and um, put a bit of structure to this. Yes. Um, so he doesn't speak to the media very often, except yes. on his own terms to people he regards as, as favourable supplicants, if you like, or people who will report in ways that, that he's happy about and, and will ask questions that he's happy about. And since he's retired, he's been fairly quiet. He hadn't said anything about this controversy about golf courses, but obviously that doesn't reflect well on him. It's, it's been yeah. beaten up in, in certain areas of the media, particularly the Herald Sun, and I think even the Australians made mention of it. But that's something, as you said, they haven't actually asked, he hasn't applied directly to be a member, but it's the, the question's been put by other people sounding out the position of a couple of golf courses, both the Portsea and, and the National up at Cape Shank. He did do a podcast recently. I flicked you a link to it, and I believe you've listened to it. And the title of that podcast is The Haters Hate and the Rest Vote Labor. Now, that was done by Dunn Street Media. That's correct. They're a polling business or you know, focus group, market research type business that, that has worked for the Victorian Labor Party. And so they've got quite a strong history. They know each other. And I think of all the people who might be prepared to have a frank conversation with, you know, that was probably one of the few that he's prepared to sit down with. And so he did. What did you make of what he said in that? What was your overall impression of of what he said? I think he came across as somewhat psychophantic to the presenter. Mm. The presenter is left of centre and he spoke about his family, the stresses of life, and tried to present himself as an individual who now has to refocus on his life, hoping that people will have a lot of empathy for him. Personally, I I thought it was quite manipulative and, from my point of view, not all that believable. Yeah. The name of the podcast is Socially Democratic. So if, if listeners are interested, you can just do a search in your podcast app or on Google, and uh, you'll find this discussion that goes for over an hour. He does talk about you know his life during and after politics. Yes. What, what I didn't hear from him, Pierce, and I think you'll agree with this, he's not a person that apologises. Mm. Now, he had a lot of time there to say, look, what's happened in the state where we had the greatest lockdown in the world. We may have overreacted. We may have caused a lot of harm. We could have had some empathy with people. We could have listened. We could have had some transparency. We could have said that the modelling isn't accurate. There's a million things that he could have said to absolutely make people feel somewhat better about the lockdowns because the lockdowns have been an absolute disaster and Mm. we all know this Mm. and he had his time to just i won't use the word repent but just to have a little bit of empathy but Mm. he doesn't have empathy Mm. and this i found extremely disappointing Mm. i mean when you think what he put this state through I think we experienced the worst public health disaster in the history of Victoria. 
But the irony, P.S., is it wasn't from the impact of the COVID virus, mm. but it was from the misguided action of the Andrews government in particular and also some of the actions of the federal government. But it was basically the Andrews government that has had a huge impact on the health and well-being of of the Victorian people. So, yeah, yep. And uh, what we said from the very start mm. was that lockdowns cause more harm than the virus itself. Mm. So you'll have people there, Pierce, and this is this you see this all the time, and they'll say, "Oh, look, he has done." a great job he has saved us daniel andrews has saved us mm. we had to do this now this appears 100 fallacy he didn't keep us safe because all you have to do is look at one country and you know the country i'm talking about and that is sweden now sweden had a fellow there the health minister anders tegnell extremely experienced politician who believed in people, who had common sense and wasn't in Daniel Andrews' sort of thing, I have to stay in power at all costs. This bloke believes in people, he's a people person, and we just have to have a look at the results of Sweden to realise that what we went through in Victoria has been totally ridiculous. Mm. But I don't even think you need to think beyond Australia. I mean, just make the comparison to New South Wales, which had more people arriving from overseas and potentially a greater problem with COVID because of that, because those those new arrivals were re effectively reintroducing the virus. We'd eliminate it or we'd get yeah. the numbers right down and we'd isolate yeah. them. Yeah. But then we'd get someone who's come in, newly arrived, and they've reintroduced perhaps a, a new, more deadly or more, more uh, infectious strain. But, well, but New South I, Wales I, I, had a lower death toll than Victoria and they had yeah, nothing well, we like had the, nothing the like the lockdown that Victoria had either. Yeah, yeah. well, we had the quarantine disaster where 800 people died. Mm. So that made a huge difference. But don't forget, still, there were significant lockdowns in New South Wales. Mm. Children were stopped from going to school, not for quite as long as in Victoria. Not nearly as long. I don't know exactly what the figures are, but it wasn't nearly as long. But they were still locked. They, they still schools were still closed. Mm. There was still there wasn't what there should have been, and that this is focus protection. We, you know, you can't trivialise the elderly people. The elderly people, those in chronic illness, as we've spoken about previously, were at risk, no mm. question. Mm. But the vast majority of the population were not at risk, no more than with a flu. So, to think that the vast majority of the population have been treated as puppets uh, in lockdown, as all, all the criteria from lockdown, is just extraordinary. The other thing, of course, is uh, vaccination. And, you know, to think that no jab, no job, no life. Now, when you look at vaccination, Pierce, vaccination has been the greatest, one of the greatest things that's ever happened in medical history. When we're looking at vaccines for tetanus, whooping cough, rubella, smallpox, TB, these have all been life-saving vaccines. But the vaccines that we've been subject to are not quite as good as these vaccines and that they can be somewhat controversial. Mm. So I'm by no means, a, I, I think vaccination is absolutely wonderful, mm. provided it's appropriate. But I think mandatory vaccines where people have lost their jobs mm. and we now know through very good people, a chap who's the professor at Stanford University, Jay Bhattacharya, he told us, he came over and spoke with us and he told us before anyone realised this that the vaccines did not stop transmission of the virus. Mm. And that's the reason why people were forced to be vaccinated because if you weren't vaccinated, you couldn't work. I couldn't work. Pilots couldn't work. But it had nothing to do with transmission, no difference at all. So this is quite interesting. And there mm. hasn't really been a whole lot of further discussion about this I think mm. there will be in the future. See, COVID is still around. I mean, you, you still Absolutely. hear about it. And there, apparently there's, there's a big spike happening up in Queensland at the moment and also in Victoria and Melbourne. And they're saying it's going to peak around Christmas time. But 
you know, there are a lot of people getting COVID. I've, I mean, anecdotally, I've heard of a few people, friends and friends of friends who've, oh, who've yes. had it recently and, you know, they've been to Christmas parties. That's one of the, the things that can trigger it. So it's still around. It hasn't been solved, but apparently it's, you know, I mean, you ask them how sick they are. Some people say oh, they were really, really crook. Other people say oh, it, was, it was sort of somewhere between a cold and the flu. Exactly. The great irony, Pierce, a friend of mine who's a GP, summed it up perfectly. He said, what do you think? You just lock everyone down mm. and the virus mm. disappears? Mm. I mean, this is totally facile thinking. It's mm. not how disease works, but it's basically because we were, as we know, and we've spoken about this previously, we've been influenced by epidemiologists who are not doctors. So, so this is a problem. That, they're the ones that did the modelling, and the modelling was totally incorrect. We're taking the conversation beyond Victoria because there were lockdowns all around the world. Now, you know, yes. as you mentioned, Sweden it wasn't as wasn't as strict in Sweden, wasn't as strict in New South Wales. No, wasn't there, as... there were no lockdowns in Sweden. Yeah, Children and, and countries that, that you didn't expect to do well, like you know, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, those sort of countries that you know, second world, third world countries yes. did well. You know, they they, they and they and they, uh, they managed to contain it. They didn't have a lot of deaths. And they didn't have the advantages of technical prowess, if you like, of, of uh, some first world countries in dealing with it. But, yeah, but right. by the sound of things, you know, you're really saying that a lot of the world, the majority of the world succumbed to a kind of mass hysteria about COVID yes. and, and I, just didn't, I, I, didn't I, I respond agree. appropriately. I, I, that, that is exactly what I'm saying. And the lockdowns came from China. China was the first people, the first country to instigate uh, lockdowns. That's right. The, mm. the World Health Authority thought lockdowns were a good idea. Mm. They got it wrong. The mm. only country that got it right was Sweden. Mm. And Sweden got it right. And they were absolutely scoffed at initially. And then, mm. oh, these people from Sweden, you know, um, this, that they, they don't understand. There's going to be uh, mass people dying. Well, no more people died in Sweden than anywhere else, but they didn't have lockdowns. There was a pandemic at the end of the First World War, uh, the, yes, Spa the Spanish yes, flu. Spanish flu. And that, I think it caused something like, I mean, it was a, a huge death toll, something like 20 million people. 20 uh, million. Yeah. The response to that was to have lockdowns or to try to contain it. They just finished a, a world war. So it was kind of a, a difficult time to, to be trying to have that kind of social engineering or that kind of control. But, but essentially, 100 years later, there wasn't really any improvement in the response. There wasn't anything, you know, you'd think with advanced medicine and, and all the sort of technological advances that we've made in that hundred years that we would have responded differently. But essentially, we, we, it was the same kind of response. It was like we were back in, you know, 1918 in terms of the sophistication or lack of yeah, the, for totally the response. Totally unsophisticated thinking. Just mm. totally unsophisticated thinking. No basic understanding. Mm. Especially vaccinating young people this is just ridiculous mm. you know my granddaughter got vaccinated mm. young children if they're not vaccinated with triple triple therapy or whooping cough they they can get incredibly sick and die or with rubella but uh, young children don't die of covid mm. so it is pretty much overreaction yeah and just a transformation of this disease and forgetting everything else you know, and it's cost the world so it's cost health. the world so much it's cost the world dearly because and, and one of the very interesting things I think that was said and I think it was a, a, a an English politician by the name of Haig and he was part of the um, you oh, know, conservative show. side of politics over there but yeah. but he made it and I think he was the foreign minister under David Cameron actually just from memory yeah. could be wrong about that but but he made this observation early on in the pandemic in 2020 when it first you know when we first had lockdowns and the whole world went into lockdown international travel stopped international trade dried up uh, and these lockdowns began um, but he said the effect of the pandemic is that we are compressing 20 years of human history into one year or less and and you think of what that what that actually means you know what are examples to sort of illustrate that well Look at how unstable the world is. I mean, look, the world did have problems prior to the pandemic. There's no question. And there were pockets of, of instability uh, and there were all sorts of simmering tensions around the world. But it set back the world in a lot of ways. It set back the world economically. It damaged people's livelihoods. 
It damaged people's morale. It damaged people psychologically to have lockdowns. And in Melbourne, I mean, I think one of the, you know, someone who I, I know who made it down to Tasmania before the lockdowns, before the pandemic began, they'd moved down there. Then they came back for a visit towards the end of 2021. And Melbourne had gone through these really harsh lockdowns, the longest cumulative lockdowns of any city on the planet. And they said they could feel it. They said as, a, as an outsider who's come back, well, someone who knows Melbourne but wasn't here for the lockdowns, didn't experience the ring of steel, the curfews, that one hour of, of exercise permitted, the only reason you're allowed to leave your house or to go to the shop. They really noticed it. They said it was, it was eerie coming back to Melbourne and seeing people en masse who had this kind of PTSD, if you like, post-traumatic mm. stress disorder. Yeah, um, do, you, do, you, do you think it's that just, that's real for, for Melbourne? Oh, I agree. One thing I don't quite understand but is real is general practice is now not what it was two or three years ago. Mm. And all the patients are telling me this. GP sounded incredibly stressful. Mm. People that were going to retire, supposing you're a 70-year-old GP, you might have worked another five years, ten years maybe at the most. Mm. These GPs in their late 60s and 70s, a lot of them just retired. It was all too difficult, too stressful. Mm. Um and I could not agree more. It's affected everyone. And I mean, basically, we need to have a serious inquiry with proper terms of reference just yeah. to examine how we mismanaged the COVID pandemic so badly. Mm. And we, we need two things. We need accountability mm. and scrutiny. Yep. And and, and, and and I think that one of the reasons for that's why that's important is it's possible there'll be another one and it could be worse. Well, exactly. Mm. Exactly. You have to learn from the mistakes. You can't go through this again. Mm. It's quite interesting when you hear some of the stuff by Gigi Foster. I don't know if you know her. She's from the University of New South Wales. Mm. She's been on Q&A a couple of times. And she basically says that the cost of lockdowns is absolutely horrendous. I don't know how she comes to this figure, but she says the cost in financial terms is uh, something like 70 times worse than what you would think. It's just horrendous. Mm. Small business being destroyed, people's confidence being destroyed, the, the whole gamut of the negativity of a lockdown compared with the virus itself. The virus itself hasn't really done a huge amount of damage. It's the government's way it's dealt with the virus has caused the problem okay well i mean we've kind of slightly veered away from from um, dan andrews which is which is fine because the, i mean they're obviously these subjects are linked and i think it's interesting and it is it is important to recognize that it wasn't you know australia and victoria i mean while we may have had an extreme response here and and a, an even more damaging response than elsewhere it was a phenomenon that was experienced around the world. You said it started with the Chinese, and I can remember early news reports yes. from from uh, you know from from 2020, early 2020, before we had that announcement from Scott Morrison that we were going to have a, a nationwide lockdown. There were people in white suits in China with nets on poles, grabbing people and and taking them off to hospitals. They fire a laser at someone's forehead, and if they had a temperature. They're basically under arrest and taken off to the gulag. You know, it was it was pretty extreme. The Chinese response was pretty extreme, and 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 it's funny that okay, the rest of the world didn't necessarily do it to that ext extremity. Just a little thing. Mm. Uh, I think if you were at the border between Coolangatta and Tweed Heads, you could have thought this is pretty weird because the New South Wales Queensland border. There's some strange things happening then, if you if you recall. It's quite interesting, isn't it? The three big Labor leaders, Palaszczuk, McGowan and Andrews, have all left, and they've all done extremely well from it politically. Right. As, as you know, in the West, only two Liberal seats mm. in, that, in that election from McGowan. Mm. McGowan left, just mm. couldn't do it, you know, had it, said he had burnout. Palaszczuk, as we know, this week has just left. Mm. She was absolutely vitriolic. Remember where Queensland um, hospitals refused to take people from New South Wales? I mean, this is just ludicrous. Mm. And our old friend Daniel Andrews said that the three powerful Labor politicians have all left. It's because they were, they, see, they were able to spin it as a health emergency. Absolutely. And, 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 this, absolutely. Is, and this is the reason why a, a lot of people, even though they didn't like the lockdowns, I don't think anyone liked the lockdowns, but they... It was able to be presented to them as this is a tough decision. 
but only a good leader is prepared to make this tough decision. That's how Dan Andrews justified what he was doing and maintained popularity or support anyway, not popularity, but support. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. And there's been there's been some stuff interestingly coming out about you know how they were using focus groups to work out yes. what people would to- what would people would tolerate you know so yes. they had so very detailed research being done informing them okay well how far can we go you know what can we get away with which yeah, was right. which was interesting because it was sort of them them it was them making it it came back to politics you know we want to stay in power yes. so. That's right. What mm. can we do to stay in power? Mm. What is the easiest way for us to stay in power? Mm. And don't worry about the poor general people whose lives are being destroyed mm. financially and mentally. Mm. You know. Yeah, I, I don't think they'd be able to do it again. I think that they've people did talk about this, that governments were spending their lockdown capital, if you like. And there's all sorts of interesting things which come out of this, but I always... I suppose prided myself in a way that Australians were were this sort of laconic, independent-minded group of people. But when it came to the pandemic and the lockdowns that was dictated from the state governments to a greater or lesser degree, Australians went along with it. Australians were very were very compliant, which kind of goes against that idea that they're a sort of freedom-loving, laconic, independent-minded group. You know, that was the nineteen um, fifties. Chips Rafferty sort of person, Pears. Remember Chips Rafferty? No, it's before my time. (laughs) Maybe before you in the 50s. But actually talking about that, it is very interesting with Barry Humphreys, Mm. just to go laterally just quickly, Mm. to say that he wasn't comfortable having his funeral service in Victoria. Right. And I think that said a lot. The yep. family didn't want it. Mm. Remember, he lost the sponsorship of the comedy company because he was politically incorrect. Right. And just this is probably the greatest Australian comic genius in our generation, if not ever. But I don't think he was a supporter, or I know he definitely wasn't a supporter of the political correctness and... Um, the way the Victorian Labor government did its business. Mm. So hence, um, they had the funeral in New South Wales. Yep. So you know, look, he's a master politician. You said he had a, he had one of the biggest staff of any premier, bigger than yes. the, the, the prime minister's personal staff in in the office of the premier. And he did concentrate a lot of power there. But he had a big social media team. So I've been looking a little bit on social media today and recently ahead of this conversation with you about what people have said since he resigned uh, and what the response was. And and it's overwhelmingly positive, you know, and that's because it, the people who are motivated to speak out tend to be people who supported him rather than the people, the people who didn't, who were against him, were less outspoken. The supporters were very quick to line up and and, uh, and anyone who made a criticism on social media was just swamped. You know, they might be yeah. one in 10 people who's saying, oh, you know, I don't think this is, what about this, that and the other? And there's 10 people who suddenly jump on that person and go, oh, you've been, you've been reading the Herald Sun. You know, where else do you get your information? That kind of response. So he's a very successful politician. He, he won three elections. And in fact, his his political history is quite interesting. He was born in 1972. He comes from Wangaratta. Comes from Wangaratta. Went to went to. I know people that have. I've got patients that have been to school with him. Yep. Went to uh, Galen Catholic College. In 1993, he joined the Labor Party, became a member of its socialist left faction, and then in 1996, became an electorate officer for Federal Labor MP Alan Griffin joined the party's head office as an organiser, then as an assistant state secretary. Hmm. And then in 2006, became Minister for Gaming, Minister for Consumer Affairs and Minister assisting the Premier on Multicultural Affairs. That was under Steve Brax. And then joined the Brumby Labor government after that. Then in 2013... He had that incident where he, he hit a cyclist, Ryan. Uh, yeah, this, is, Mull- this is very interesting. Yeah, so Ryan Mullerman on the Mornington Peninsula, and there's still in the courts about that. So we probably shouldn't say too much about that. IBAC, the anti-corruption body, cleared them of any wrongdoing in 2017. But as I said, it's still in the courts. Yeah, um, it's still could, this could still reappear. 
Yep. And then in December 2014 became Premier. So what's his legacy? He had about, uh, what, seven, eight years in power? What's the legacy of, of Dan Andrews? Firstly, because you're a doctor, you're a medical specialist, from a medical point of view, his impact on public health in, in the state of Victoria. I think in the long term, very bad. The public hospital system now is in total disarray. You know, if you remember, there were going to be 4,000 ICU beds, remember this? Yeah, yeah. For COVID, well, that was just uh, total nonsense. Mm. The public hospital system is in disarray, I can tell you. Mm. It's been propped up by a lot of patients in the public hospital system being treated in private hospitals. Right. To, to get turnover through. But it is interesting. It's a well-worn path. It's not just Daniel Andrews. Paul Keating, lots of people have done this same thing, where the difference between he and Paul Keating, Paul Keating left school at 15, went straight into, into working for the Labor Party, whereas Daniel Andrews has been to university. He's never had a job in private industry. He's worked for the Labor Party as soon as he left university. He will say that he has a background in private industry because he worked for his father, in Wangaratta because his father was a a small businessman but he has never employed a single person himself he has worked for the Labor Party and then gone into politics as the vast majority of people in the Labor Party do in in state and federal politics I don't think any of them have uh, well not any but very few have ever worked in private business Mm. and, and employed people themselves Mm. So I think his legacy is going to be negative from a health point of view and from a a general point of view of the whole way he has managed the economy in Victoria. I think it's been appalling. I think he's just worked on infrastructure and the unions, the CFMEU, have basically had a ball. They've done extremely well out of it. People have left private industry, tradies have left the private system to go and work for public infrastructure. The costs have spiralled out of control, as we all know. Just take, for instance, this week, PS, where it was a 150% increase in the northeast from $10.5 billion to $26 billion mm. For the uh, for this infrastructure, all the, the one thing he's done is very well is the overpasses for, for trains. That's been good, but they've all been underquoted by thirty to forty percent. We've got a twenty million dollar debt per day as a result of Daniel Andrews and his government, and I think it's appalling. And I think now it's starting to head home. You've got to remember, a third of the population in Victoria are government employees and they've all going to vote, not all of them, but the majority of them are going to vote for the Labor Party because they've been looked after so well, they've been so well paid. Is that but, a third, um, a third of the work? The other, third of the the other two thirds are not happy. Is that, is the that tradies a... aren't happy, Pierce. I'm, the tradies are not going to, uh, are going to swing away from the Labor Party, I'm yeah. sure. Just to clarify that figure you mentioned, you said the third of the population of Victoria, so that's obviously that's of the working population. Of the working population, right? Okay. Yeah, about yep. a third. Yeah. Yeah. It could be twenty-eight percent. Could be thirty percent. Yeah. Can't give you a total figure, but it's a it's a significant. I mean, imagine if you've got a block of 30 percent of people mm. in an election. I mean, that's an enormous block that are going to vote for you. Mm. It's incredible. This is kind of, a, I don't know, it's a bit of an extension of the, the discussion. But, I mean, when you go back to the 1980s and we had the Kane-Kerner um, government yes. and that, and that uh, you know, ended in disaster, basically. The state yes. bank had to be bailed out by the Commonwealth Bank. Pretty much the state was bankrupted. And then we had Jeff Kennett for a while. If you go back a little bit further, so the Liberals were in power from 1955 to 1982. So we had That's a big right. chunk of time. Henry yep. And, you know, he was there for 20 years. Yep. He was a family friend of my father's. They used to go shooting together. Right. He's yesterday's man, obviously. He wouldn't survive today. He was the antithesis of political correctness. You know, the only mistake he made was he didn't do the rail link to the airport. Yeah. And this is still not being done. It's just extraordinary. I know. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? The 
it's it's been spent by this government and they haven't done that. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, the waste in this government has just been extraordinary. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I had this... Ch- Kid down, well, I was walking the dog, and this guy, young kid's an electrician. We we're talking about our dogs. We started talking, What job do you do? I'm an electrician. After about 10 or 15 minutes, I got to, you know, have a good chat to him. I said, Look, if you don't mind me asking, what are you earning? He's a, he was 26 and he was on 250,000 a year. Pretty good, isn't it? Pretty good when you're an electrician. Yep. When you're 26. And he was working on one of those big infrastructure projects? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, with overtime. Yeah, but uh, pretty good. Yep. Okay, so that we we had Balti for a long time, and then we yes. had Kennett from ninety two to ninety nine, and then pretty much apart from a short break of Ted Beatty from twenty ten to twenty thirteen. Yeah. Otherwise, we've had the ALP in power right up to the present time, and we've got them for another three years. They won the election about a year ago, basically, and it's a four year term for state politics. Ooh. So, I mean, what? How do you account? for the success of the ALP for such a long period of time in Victoria, just out of interest? It's certainly no longer the jewel in the crown. I think that someone said, Menzies or Harold Holt or someone said, you know, Victoria's a jewel in the crown. Mm. I think um, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's always going to be swings from left to right and whatever. And of recent times, I think the... Liberal opposition has been second rate. Mm, mm. I don't think there's been any leader. Ted Bailey wasn't good. I just don't think they know how to appeal to the average person. What have they done? You've got to have some sort of infrastructure, but not like we've got here. Mm. But I think I, I think now they've burned it out. I mean, they're going to do this rail loop that. A patient of mine came to see me, and he was third in in the hierarchy of this rail loop. That's you know, it's going to cost I don't know two hundred million. The loop from all the way around Melbourne. I think it's or is it going to go from Cheltenham to Box Hill? I'm, I'm, and maybe further. I'm not sure. But he he told me this underground loop was going to finish by 2054. <laughs> and. This is all I thought, you know, in 2054, I'll be 101. I won't be alive in 2054. But I thought, this is just, I mean, do we need it? So I think what happens is if you employ people and they're they're so well looked after and so many people are working for the public service, then people are going to, people vote for what's going to be better for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's more Indians than chiefs. So the chiefs are in private industry and uh, a lot of the Indians are working for the government. Mm. And, you know, there's huge slabs. If you're a public servant, if you're a teacher or whatever, then you're probably going to be a bit on the left side of politics. Mm. I think what happens is when people see corruption, then that will change their vote. Mm. No one's going to vote for someone who's going to be corrupt. And I think people are starting to realise now that this government, I, I'm pretty sure this government's going to be, is, is pretty corrupt. I, I, you know, there's been enormous waste. How you define corruption is another matter, but some of these Chinese deals and the Belt and Road and whatever, who knows what's going on. Mm. But I think I think people have had enough, and I think over time it'll come back. But the opposition's certainly not staring, are they? And that's the other thing. I mean, I think if, you know, you can say, oh, that, that Dan Andrews is this brilliant, great politician, and he certainly is a very assertive sort of person. Oh, he's a very astute politician. Yeah, no astute and, and, and assertive and, and good at playing the game and understanding what's going to be effective. You know, it, it kind of strips away the subtlety and just, just keeps things simple, which is, which is a, a good approach when you're, when you're talking to the, the sort of wider public through the media. But... You have to say also that if you've got a really weak opposition, then it's it's easy to be a good politician. It's yeah, easy to sure. be successful as the as the premier, as the incumbent. As you said earlier, incumbent has the advantage. The opposition in Victoria, the Liberal Party or the Liberal National Coalition, really has a lot of soul searching to do. And I mean, they have to basically reinvent themselves because otherwise we'll get, we're going to have Labor forever. If there's no alternative, even if you don't like corruption and other things that might come out about you know, cost blowout and, and debt forever and all that sort of stuff and downgrading our credit rating from AAA to AA and having to pay higher interest and mm. then introducing in state-specific taxes to pay for all this stuff. 
Even if you see all those things, you have to vote for something that's viable. And if the, if there's, if the opposition or the alternative is not viable, then it doesn't matter what the government does. That's unfortunately... You must, you must remember, he's a very left-wing Labor person. He's from the socialist left. Yep. People like Brumby and Brax were far more from the right yep. compared with him. Mm. As we all know, with socialists, they have trouble balancing a budget. This government has enormous trouble balancing a budget and people in small business will leave. Payroll tax is going up, land tax is going up. They're going to be taxing everyone as much as they can and people in small business are going to look at themselves and say, well, maybe I might move north. And it was interesting on the subject of corruption and that, that, that allegation that's been made, the former head now of, of the independent body against corruption, Robert Redlick, came out and and said Parliament's key integrity committee acted without integrity and in the political interests of the Andrews government, which is a pretty damning criticism. And it's pretty clear what that's suggesting. The ombudsman also, um, Deborah Glass, was very critical of the way that cabinet papers and other sensitive documents which she needed to properly investigate ministerial decision-making, she was locked out. You know, she was given, you know, just a, a blank wall or a dead end when it came to yeah, getting hold of those those documents. And she's calling for a, uh, a huge shake-up of cabinet secrecy in Victoria. But so far, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Even though Jacinda Allen, the new Premier who took over from Dan Andrews, said, oh, it's gonna, I'm, I'm going to be a different leader, it's going to be open and and transparent. She's showing no signs of changing that tightness with information and that, that resistance to any kind of probe. When you talk about the Commonwealth Games mm. and they have the inquiry in the Commonwealth Games, she said, oh, the inquiry's in the Legislative Council. I'm in the Legislative Assembly. I don't have anything to do with what's going on in the Legislative Council. This is only about 7 or $8 billion that was going to be wasted. I mean, it's a huge debacle and she is just deflecting the whole responsibility away from her. This is exactly what Daniel Andrews has done. Robert Redlich did, and I think he brought this out. A couple of legal friends of mine said 18 months ago that Robert Redlich was onto something. And, you know, he's a retired... He was a Supreme Court judge, I think, and then I don't know whether he went back to the bench or what. That all seems to have sort of died... Uh, 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 but you know, he's uh, the, the Labor government, whether it's Daniel Andrews or Jacinta Allen, they just deflect and don't answer questions if the heat gets too hot for them. Mm. So it's just uh, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. I think what happens is the pendulum's going to swing the other way. There are signs that things are starting to turn a little bit. You know, you've got Queensland, yeah, Palaszczuk's resigned, you've got. Dan Andrews has resigned. You've got, as you said, McGowan in the West has resigned. And and also a lot of pressure on the Albanese government now, particularly after they wasted a lot of money and, and opportunity, if you like, with the, with the voice referendum, which just wasn't properly sold and, 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 a, and, a, and a lost opportunity for Indigenous Australians, that people would argue. So there's, there are signs that the pendulum is swinging the other way and that it'll be a big mess to clean up, but someone's going to have to do it eventually. Just to, to wrap up, because we've been going for about an hour, Jeff, going back to golf. Now, you've played a few rounds with Dan Andrews. Is he a good golfer? Yeah, he's a reasonable golfer. I think he's off a handicap of about 10 or 12. Yep. Which for someone his age, he's about he's about fifty two or fifty three. Is not a bad handicap. He doesn't do any you know things like Donald Trump, where he sort of loses balls or finds them miraculously. No, no, or anything. No. He's too smart for that. Right? No, no. On the golf course, he's I, I played him a couple of times. He's, he's a reasonable person to play golf with. Yeah, and does he, do you ever talk about it? It's just like is it sort of deliberately keeping politics out of the conversation? So you just you, you kind of don't go there because you're having a round of golf and you want it to be relaxed. Yeah. I spoke to him quite a few times and I played with him on two occasions. Mm. No, we didn't talk politics. No, no. No. I think now he has been such an overpowering person in the state and he's changed the state of Victoria Mm. to a significant degree that I think the old axiom, you can't take politics out of it, isn't quite as relevant. Mm. And a lot of people, it's interesting what you say when you don't want to offend people. But if I had to ask him one question, I think the question would be, how does it feel to be the most disliked person in Victoria? Because I still think 
if you took a poll, there wouldn't be anyone who's anywhere near as disliked as he is now. His attitude is, you know, you say I'm unpopular and you say that, you know, that people hate me, but I won three elections and I left on my own terms with an increased majority. So that's his sort of stock standard response. Look, yeah. at, look at the polls. You can say what you sure. like about, about whether I'm popular or not. I went to his election in Mulgrave and Ian Cook was there and Ian Cook, everyone was taking uh, votes off Ian Cook. Yep. And at the biggest polling booth, no one was taking any votes from the Labor Party. It was extraordinary. And there were 16 people there. Just by chance, he was number one on the electoral card, which is interesting. That's how you get lucky. Uh, there were 16 other people there, and the two Labor guys who were there, no one was taking any votes from them. This was the biggest polling booth, Pierce. It was quite interesting. So I thought Ian Cook was going to win. But at the end of the first evening of counting, Daniel Andrews had 11,000 votes. Ian Cook had, I think, about 6,000. The Liberal bloke had 3,000. Well, if you want to hear, you know, one of the few interviews that he's done, we mentioned it before, it's called the Socially Democratic Podcast. Yeah. And, and he did it quite recently because he felt very comfortable with the host, Stephen Donnelly, who's a former Labor campaigner. Jeff, a really interesting conversation with you. You did the COVID Doctors Network, which was trying to lobby the government to be mindful of the side effects of lockdown and that their so-called cure of lockdown was worse than the virus itself. And I, yes. I, I really enjoyed those. And I think they were very important things to get out there for people to listen to and be aware of because we were in a bit of a, and we still are to some extent, we were in a bit of a, it was a kind of government echo chamber where we weren't really hearing too much dissent at all. And I think the fact that that, that COVID Doctors Network struggled to even really get an audience with the Premier. Eventually, they got one with the uh, the Health Minister. But, you know, to have a government that's, that's, that's ignoring what a large network of senior doctors are, are saying is a yes. pretty scary situation when the whole thing is about a health crisis. Exactly. There was no transparency, as we know. We, mm. No one knew where the modelling was coming from. No one was saying what was going on. It was just lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. And Jeff, um, just finally, what did you think of Brett Sutton, who is the Chief Health Officer under Dan Andrews? Uh, yes. What did you think of him being made Victorian of the Year last year? Yeah. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Very disappointing. Mm. He was Chief Health Officer. He was a registrar at Sandringham Hospital in accident and emergency. He wasn't a consultant. And he did a Master of Public Health at James, Park, at James Cook University. He wrote three papers. One of them was about venereal disease. One of them was about climate change. I don't know what the third one was. But because he had a Master of Public Health, he got to be elected Chief Officer, probably because no one else applied for the job. I I don't, he, but he didn't get elected. He just got appointed. He was just yeah, it was a government. It was a yeah, government appointment. Right. Yeah. I don't think anyone else would have. I don't think anyone else would have applied for the job. <laughs> but you know, he was just a registrar. Mm. You know, a couple of years beforehand, mm. in the casualty department at a small peripheral hospital at Sandringham. Mm. So it wasn't he wasn't a consultant. But you wonder whether he was really hired for his medical expertise. I think, he, I think you told me a while ago he was he was made a professor, but it was a it was yes. sort of an honorary thing rather yeah. than a adjunct a, professor. Adjunct professor, yeah. yeah. And yeah, that was that was right. to bolster his credibility a bit. If yeah. You like. yeah, I think he's working for CSL now. Is he okay? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, Jeff Wells, urologist and specialist, and and uh, the the organizer of the COVID Doctors Network. Uh, it's still interesting to see how the um, medical fraternity rebelled against what the government was doing with lockdowns. Thank you very much, Jeff, and we will speak soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Pierce. Oh, my God.